There were lots of losers last week, election losers. Hey, everybody, this is Randy Shandeville, and you're listening to This Golden State. Hillary Clinton, a loser, of course. The Clinton Foundation, Clinton aides, her political consultants, political pundits, pollsters, President Obama, his legacy, the DNC, and, oh, let's not forget, people in my profession, journalists. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The mainstream media misread the biggest political story, certainly in decades. Trust in the media is at an all-time low, according to a new poll. But then trust in polls has taken a hit, too, because pollsters also missed the story. And then there's this. Terrible. Horrible. Unbelievable. Illegitimate. Disgusting. Scum. The next president of the United States not only trashes the media, he's at times barred media organizations he doesn't like from covering him, has threatened to file lawsuits against media organizations for, quote, false stories, and even changed laws so that he can sue them even more. I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. This is just the latest bad news for journalists. Newspapers have been closing and downsizing for years. TV newsroom cutbacks, salary cuts, clickbait replacing content, difficult times. Still, with all of this going on, young men and women are still studying to become journalists. I think this is a very awkward time to aspire to become a journalist, but we try to keep a cool head and we try to keep moving forward. UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism is considered one of the best J schools in the country. Today, we talk with Berkeley's Dean Ed Wasserman about what the mainstream media did wrong this year and how to fix it, and to Berkeley students about whether... They're second-guessing their career choice. It's a real wake-up call. Graduate student Peter Bittner hopes to become an international correspondent. You're paying considerable money to be here. You're undoubtedly working hard. You're aspiring to become a journalist. At a time that trust in mainstream journalism is plummeting, and the next president of the United States says you're scum. Right, so it's scary times. We're being vilified and demonized, and uh, the industry is really in shambles. In terms Kyle of, Litowitz uh, is studying to become a photojournalist. I was in downtown Oakland photographing anarchists who were looting the area. Who he says he was taking pictures of the anti-Trump demonstrations in Oakland the night after the election when four looters kicked him to the ground, hit him, and stole his cameras. So last night you're beat up by anarchists. Yeah. And the next president of the United States routinely bashes journalists. Do you feel this is an awkward time to aspire to become a journalist? I think this is a very awkward time to aspire to become a journalist. I've never seen anything quite like this in the United States. I mostly do foreign correspondence, uh, and I do conflict photography, so I'm in a lot of war zones or places where countries don't actually have free media laws. And it always gives me a great respect for my country, for the U.S., saying, like, oh, well, I can come back and, like, look at these freedoms that we have and actually seeing... This lashback now is very scary. But you are going to continue. You still plan to become a journalist. Without a doubt. I'm, uh, I'm going to be out there tonight. Marcos Martinez and Ingrid Fuentes, two journalism students, both are from Mexico. I have never felt more targeted by the most powerful men in this land. 
So in the eyes of the next president of the United States, you're a double whammy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As Mexican as and as a journalist, I am double scum, I guess, to his eyes. But I have never felt more relevant as a journalist as I feel now. There are so many voices of immigrants, illegal immigrants, that will need uh, a journalist to hear them and make them visible to the world and to the rest of the United States. So I, I feel very proud to be a Mexican journalist in the United States at, at this moment. Are you more concerned as a Mexican or as a journalist? I think both. I'm worried from both fronts, as a Mexican and as a journalist. I just feel less secure. So, what will the future be like for journalists in President Trump's America? And what mistakes did the mainstream media make covering his rise to power? Here's the dean of UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, Ed Wasserman. I think it's important to remember that trust in the media has been declining for quite a while. Uh, just as pen media penetration and newspaper subscriptions and evidence of uh, revenue support from the public has been dropping for quite a while. Wasserman says shrinking newsrooms has led to spottier coverage. And spottier, sometimes inaccurate coverage just accelerates the downward spiral of public trust in journalists. The regional newspapers, uh, they have clearly fallen way, way short of what their historical kind of civic obligations were because they have no more resources. So the kind of coverage of what had been kind of mainstream beats the coverage of state and local government, for example, has kind of vanished. Uh, the amount of news in, in once prosperous regional newspapers has, has declined precipitously. So what you find that people say, well, the, the, the news, if they're mistrusting the media, they're mistrusting the media to some degree for not doing their job, their historical job. And I think that's a good reason to be unhappy with the media. Let me read you a few quotes. Most of these you're probably familiar with. Horrible disgusting, dishonest, scum. I'm not running against crooked Hillary. I'm not Hillary. running against crooked Hillary. I'm running against the crooked media. That's what I'm running against. You can't believe the press. You can't believe the press. You know, there's great dishonesty, unbelievable dishonesty in the media. Unbelievable. Such bad reporting. They're so bad. They're so illegitimate. They are just terrible people. They're scum. They're horrible They're horrible, people. horrible people. This isn't just some wazoo off the street saying that. This is the next president of the United States. Well, there's, he may also be a wazoo off the street. But I, listen, he, he criticizing the media in scathing terms has been an applause line for Republican candidates since at least Spiro Agnew in 1968-69. So they understand that vilifying the media gets them support because it's it just... It's an unthinking kind of thing that everybody can sign on to. So uh, it's just not a, uh, it, it doesn't strike me as, as significant except as a matter of rallying, uh, you know, uh, lines in a rally. Uh, he ought to be very grateful to the media. The media basically created his candidacy for Well, him. that's what I was going to say. It's ironic that he says those things because early on in the campaign, right. they gave him a free ride. They did. All that publicity with almost no scrutiny early on. Correct. Correct. And, and I think they, the media did a, a sort of historically what will go down as a, as a major and highly consequential error when they treated him as basically an entertainment asset. 
and they used him, uh, they allowed him and gave him disproportionate airtime because he was an amusing and somewhat clownish figure, and they thought that his flaws were so self-evident that the public would never fall for it. And they didn't realize that at the same time they were conferring tremendous legitimacy and stature to his candidacy. And so he, it gave him a tailwind that got him through the primaries and into the general election. Then they started to scrutinize him a bit. But the scrutiny was sort of sporadic. And here, I think you're finding that the, the lack of resources in the hands of the, of the uh, current news media had, had tremendous uh, impact. And so you had a small number of news organizations that were scrutinizing him rather you know, scathingly. But the impact that the coverage had and the degree to which that was picked up and became part of the discourse was very, very spotty. So I think a lot of people voted without having really read very much about Donald Trump's past, uh, his performance as a business person, his multiple serial bankruptcies, his treatment of workers, his treatment of women. The women stuff got some traction, but then it was sort of dismissed as being whiny, whiny women, years old complaints blown out of proportion by a compliant media. So it seems that the New York Times, other major organizations, almost tried to make up for lost time. You know, we allowed this to happen. Certainly the cable news networks made money off the free ride that they gave them. And then the perception out there right. is that they started ganging up on them as if to make up for lost time. I think we're, we're, I think we're, we're guilty. I mean, we got to clean up our act. Yeah, they, they were spiking the punch, uh, serving, served to the alcoholic, and then they turned around and started ridiculing the drunk. And, and it, was, uh, it was incoherent, and it was, it was very strange. And, and it was seen as suddenly the media, almost uniformly, were taking on a political agenda under the name of truthfulness, under the name of fact-checking. So they began to be extremely vigilant about, uh, about Trump and about uh, criticizing things he was saying that were either inconsistent with things he had said before or incompatible with the truth. By, by being more skeptical uh, of Trump, they, there was a cost involved in terms of Clinton because they felt they had to atone for this kind of scrutiny of Trump by doing com, com, you know, commensurate scrutiny of Clinton. And in the view, certainly in the view of a lot of people, they elevated sins of Clinton's to uh, it gave them a disproportionate weight in the, mi in the mind of the public, particularly the, the emails. I mean, what struck me about the email, the email affair is that nobody ever really suggested very convincingly what she might have been trying to conceal. But the, the, the media continued to give a tremendous amount of attention to this, uh, the private email server without ever telling us why that should really matter. Well, it was a character flaw that fed into the whole notion of her making unwise decisions and undue paranoia and secretiveness and evasiveness, the way she handled it at first. And this election became more an election about character than it did issues. Right. I'm just saying that the media had a problem when they started. They had Hillary Clinton, who heaven knows had been subject to plenty of scrutiny over the last 20 years. And she'd been investigated many, many times. But in order to justify this, the, the discovery that Donald Trump maybe has a past that needs to be illuminated and brought to, before the public, and a lot of it containing things that are, don't reflect very favorably on him, in order to justify doing that, they had to go ahead and revisit these things. On Hillary, so and kind of that whole notion of false equivalencies. I think in journalism. so. I think so. I mean, Hillary had been investigated quite a lot 
you know, over the years, going back to Whitewater, which they expended a huge amount of time on. So I hear what you're saying, but there is this notion out there, certainly amongst conservatives, amongst Republicans, that the media displayed incredible anti-Republican, anti-Trump bias this election cycle. Do you buy into that? Well, uh, yeah, I I do. I think that they have a point. I think that by the time the general election was going on, the the most influential and authoritative media were approaching his candidacy with a great deal of skepticism because by conventional standards, he gave them plenty of reason. He was inconsistent. He was vague in his policy statements. He was claiming things that were plainly untrue and claimed them again and again and again. He was like a he was like a baseball player taking a long lead off first base, gets tagged out, and doesn't go to the dugout. Goes back and stands on first base and says, no, I'm not. I'm not out. Well, we called you out. No, no. <laughs> Those rules don't apply to me. And, you know, he gave them plenty of red meat to go after. So some of his inaccuracies were so glaring, some of his lies were so readily apparent that it put the media in the awkward position. I mean, normally you don't read in the New York Times front page calling a politician a liar. Right. But they did. And I, I, I guess that fed into the notion that they were biased, but but it puts you in an awkward position. I mean, his mistakes were so over the top yeah. that the column on it, you had to be over the top in your reporting. Right. So he's already threatened as a candidate to rewrite libel laws to make it easier for officials to sue journalists and, and media organizations. Do you think he'll follow through on that? How big a concern is that? He has made a lot of uh, promises along those lines. I don't think, uh, I mean, we, he would have a problem doing that. There's a Supreme Court there which has sort of sketched out pretty, for the last 50 years, what the limits of libel are with respect to public officials. And I don't think he's going to be in a position to be able to overturn, you know, Times v. Sullivan. So I think it's more of an expression of a kind of disgruntlement that he has. So I, I'm not worried about it libel law being changed at his behest. But, but back to that whole notion of false equivalencies. If, if you're doing a political campaign and one person is clearly over the top saying inaccurate things, lying, making factual mistakes, and the other is making some mistakes of her own but not necessarily to the degree that he is, and you report it as it is, it seems like it's imbalanced reporting. Right. Yeah, but listen, what we teach, I mean, balance is meant to be a vehicle toward getting at the truth of the matter. Um, It's meant to get at an underlying reality. Uh, I mean, there was a famous study done of reporting on climate change some years ago called Balance as Bias. And what they basically found is that the news media reporting on uh, the so-called the controversy over climate change reflected a controversy that was not present in the scientific literature that you had overwhelming consensus among scientists about the reality of human uh, human causation or human influence on climate change. And yet reporters, given stories on climate change, felt obligated to find dissenting voices. So when you read the news accounts of climate change uh, issues, you got the impression of a live controversy which did not exist in the scientific community, all because the, the reporters were being told to import this kind of spurious balance in order to be not to be accused of being irresponsible. And this notion of spurious balance, you say indirectly, ended up hurting Clinton. 
Oh, I think it did, yeah. I think it disparaged her candidacy and put a great moral cloud over her character in ways that I didn't really see where the wrong was. You would think we'd have a couple of smoking guns already, but I haven't seen any. Where are they? Have the media actually suppressed the, 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 con the conversation that uh, Hillary was having with some foreign minister from another country in which she said, well, we'd like to help you, but, you know, I got this foundation over here, so how about a check? I mean, where, where are the people alleging that this took place? So this was one of the biggest political stories of our lifetimes, and in a lot of ways the mainstream media got it wrong with all its technical wizardry, with all our, you know, capabilities of analyzing data, we incorrectly modeled the mood of the country. Right. And because the media have bought the idea that covering politics means covering politicians. They don't understand that covering politics should be covering the electorate. And we weren't out there. We weren't listening to people. We weren't talking to people. They were out there. We weren't monitoring the social media, which were the principal media that mattered in, this, uh, in the Trump insurgency. Well, you're getting to what I was going to bring up. We were listening to each other. Reporters talked to reporters. Journalists talked to journalists. Consultants talked to consultants. When analysts go out for drinks, they go out for drinks with other right. analysts and journalists. And it seems there wasn't as much time devoted to listening to the voices of the people. No, I think that's exactly right. We were in an echo chamber. Well, and reporters judge their value by the credibility assigned to them by other members of the political elite. They want to sound, They want to be members of that. They want to be inside the club. They want to talk about the things that the political leaders are talking about. So we spend huge amounts of time on things like, uh, you know, caucuses and early primaries. So we, we follow these little, uh, the, these little eruptions of, of formal political expression, and we're not talking to people about what's going on in their lives and what they want from their government. So it, it wasn't just the mainstream media that got it wrong in that regard. It was analysts and pollsters going all the way back to the primaries. They didn't see Trump coming. They didn't see Bernie Sanders coming. How could everyone have missed all of that? Well, I think they're talking, you, you said it yourself, they're talking to each other. And I think that the instruments that, it's clear that the instruments that we have for gauging public opinion are extremely flawed. And we know it now from Brexit, and now we know it from here. What, what do the Times have the day before the election, 87% likelihood of Hillary winning? I mean, <laughs> somebody's got to lose their job on that one. I mean, we have, there's been reason to suspect the, the uh, instruments of polling now for a long time. Just something as simple as the fact that people don't have landline phones. So you have a tremendous skewing of the popu population that you're able to survey because you don't have their cell phone numbers. So it's clear that polling is no substitute for getting out and talking to people. And, you know, it doesn't help that the resources available to the media aren't what they were. It doesn't help that when you look at the, look at the areas where Trump carried, you'll find places where the newspapers have been slimmed down or gone out of existence. So you don't have media in place knowing those communities and able to really reflect what they're saying and what they're thinking. And so you, you, you end up finding yourself uh, at the mercy of reporters from the coasts parachuted in to do uh, man-on-the-street stories in some way about communities they don't understand. It must be an awkward time to be a, a graduate student of journalism right now, to be witnessing the bashing the media's been getting yeah. this year and to watch salaries continue to go down. Well, it's no, it's not a good time. And we're lucky that we're one of a few uh, high-end, very successful journalism schools that our students find work. 
because there's still enough of a news industry out there that they can either, whether they're doing freelance work or independent documentary production or working as, as salaried uh, you know, wage earners in, in news organizations, they can find work. But you're right. I mean, there is... There's a real scarcity of the kind of jobs sprinkled around the country to give us the kind of breadth of coverage so that things like the uh, Trump insurgency don't come as a, as a surprise. We had an all-school meeting yesterday talking about this because the students were, uh, you know, obviously concerned about the election, particularly the students of color, uh, women. They saw uh, the Trump success as legitimating a kind of uh, muted bigotry that was going to end up harming them, and they felt a degree of vulnerability, on, uh, just personal vulnerability, because of this, uh, what seemed to be the arrival in power of a set of a worldview uh, and a set of uh, prejudices that were going to hurt them. So that was part of the discussion. But I think the other part of the discussion that was uh, has real consequence for the way we imagine ourselves as journalists had to do with the implicit elitism of our own worldview. The, the media should not, the, the biggest crime or the biggest sort of criticism, the most important criticism I could make of the media with respect to Trump is that uh, they were surprised by the outcome. If they were surprised by the outcome, that means they are not doing their job. And their job is to cover the country. The, the people who nourish the, the uh, Trump insurgency are people who are not in the news. They're not covered by the news. They're not being listened to in the news. And so I think the lesson, if you're asking what the lesson is from this, uh, from this affair, is that the media, if they're surprised by this outcome, it means that they are just not paying attention. Do you mind me asking, do you have kids? I do. I don't know if they are journalists, but would you advise them to become journalists at this point in time? Well, that's an interesting question. None of them are journalists. One of them, I thought, uh, could be. There's no better profession for somebody who cares, who wants to, who cares about the country, cares about the future, who wants to illuminate realities, who believes that a well-informed public can make an important, decisive difference, and, and believes in, in democracy and in popular sovereignty. I, I think that the, it's a tremendous. Uh, it's a tremendous business. As long as a reliable income isn't a priority. <laughs> well, you know, you, you find ways to make that work, uh, and people do, and people always have. Who ever made money you know, as a reporter? You know, it, it was never, that was never the appeal. It was always a modest income. It was a public service. Uh, it was like going into government, going into the public, uh, public sector. So getting back to my very first question, and this is the last question, fewer Americans than ever trust journalists, and with a President Trump, the chances are that trend will continue to even get worse. The industry seems to be shrinking, the pay isn't great, and as dean of a school preparing young people to go into the industry, what are you telling them now, big picture? Again, this is a tough moment, I would think. Well, I think that what we're trying to tell them is that they've got a job to do, and that job is not to earn uh, the love and affection of the public. That, that job is to serve the public. And that means sometimes telling people things they don't want to hear, but that they need to know. And, and we take that responsibility seriously. And yeah, it's possible that the press uh, will continue to lose in public esteem. Uh, it's also possible that the Trump presidency could be an unmitigated disaster and press coverage of it be about the only thing keeping them honest. Uh, and that people would then begin to see that maybe the press, the role of the press is actually a very helpful one and a very constructive one. But I think that, you know, it, it's interesting to reflect on 
on the fact that, you know, these polls almost invariably find that two of the most despised professions out there are a news reporter and a lawyer. And yet, when you think of what are the two institutions in society that you turn to when you're really getting beaten up and getting abused and oppressed, you either call the paper or you call a lawyer. So to some degree, what you're hearing is a sort of wistful disappoint, a disappointment and perhaps a wistfulness about the press not doing the role it should do, which is championing the public. And in fairness, you share that disappointment at times yourself. Of course. Ed Wasserman, thanks for joining us My today. pleasure. One final note. Ed Wasserman says, through it all, as many young men and women as ever are still trying to get into Berkeley's journalism school. You can subscribe to This Golden State on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and find us on San Francisco Magazine's website as well. Any comments, ideas, shoot me an email. It's shandobill at shandobill.com. That's S-H-A-N-D-O-B-I-L. Thanks for listening.